Most of you don't know that there's not just one person standing up here. There are two. And uh, the second one is the one without whom I couldn't do anything that I do, to be quite honest, and that's my wife, Julie. And Julie, if you could stand up. And um, Some of you might not know that Julie is the daughter of Ed and Mary Doubling, who attend this church. And uh, thanks to Ed and Mary Doubling, I inherited a fortune. I really did. I think the Bible calls it the crown of the husband. So imagine the crown as I speak. In case you're wondering, the picture that you see up there on the screens was taken 23 years ago on November 4th, uh, 1995. It was the wedding of Ed and Mary's uh, son, Brian, in this sanctuary. As some of you know, Brian served in Mali, Africa for 15 years, and he was for a while the supported missionary of this church. Now, you see the guy with a crop of hair signing the marriage license? Who do you think that might be? (laughs) Hard to recognize him, isn't it? But yeah, that's me. And then, of course, there's Pastor Jim Murphy on the far right who has already lost his crop of hair, obviously. Though he's covering uh, half of that up pretty successfully, or the photographer did. We co-officiated at that wedding. I did the sermon, and uh, Jim did the ceremony. And I'll tell you one thing. We didn't look half as much like each other back then. Some are saying we look like each other today. Well, that means I finally caught up. And I'm proud to be in such good company with the likes of him. I really am. He's ministered to me many times over the years as we've come to worship here. There's someone else, though, who I want to catch up with, and I'm sure Jim would, too, if you'll turn to the next slide, and that's uh, what I want to look like in my heart of hearts more and more through the years. And after only a week's worth of meetings here and meeting a lot of you and talking and having some pretty significant conversations, I know that's true for many of you, too, and that is really heartening for a pastor to see. More than anything else, uh, in addition to all that, this is what Moses looked like in his heart of hearts. It's made, what made him such a great and powerful man of God, as we'll see today. If you turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 33. Exodus is one of my favorite books in the Bible for many reasons, not the least of which is that it's the source of one of my favorite jokes. So this girl is reading her Bible on a park bench. Some of you have probably heard this one. And all of a sudden she starts to say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, glory be. And there's this, you know, professor type who's sitting next to her and he's obviously bothered and he says, what are you so happy about? And she says, well, I just read here in my Bible how the Lord parted the Red Sea and the people passed through on dry ground. And he said, young lady, don't you know that at that time in the geological history of the Near East, the Red Sea was little more than a marsh and it was only six inches deep? And she said, oh, really? But she continued to read her Bible. And all of a sudden she says, praise the Lord, hallelujah, glory be. And he turns to her and says, now what's wrong? He says, she said, well, I just read here how the Lord drowned the entire Egyptian army in six inches of water. <laughs> you start pulling the Bible apart and it just doesn't make sense. It's all true. The real reason, though, why I like the book of Exodus is because Moses is one of my favorite Bible characters. He's right up there with Elihu in the book of Job, and that's not a joke, and I may tell you about him were we to come. Another one of my favorites is Eleazar, the son of Dodo. He's my favorite in spite of that name. 
I like him in spite of his name. He was among the three mightiest of David's mighty men. And we know nothing about him except one verse, 2 Samuel 23.10, uh, which says, He arose and struck the Philistines with his hand, uh, struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And then it says this, And the Lord brought about a great victory. And if that's not a good part of the Christian life, I don't know what is. And it's a story of what you're going through. On one hand, our hand grows weary as we cling to the sword, as we fight the good fight, but it's the Lord who brings about a great victory. Unless the Lord builds the house, what? They labor in vain who build it. Far more than a pastor, you need him. You, we need him more than anything else. We need a God to go before us, as I've titled uh, this message. That should be our plea, just as it was for Moses, as we'll see, which leads us to our passage for today. Exodus 33 is the chapter after the incident of the golden calf in chapter 31, or 32, which is where I'd like to begin. Because in these three chapters, in Exodus 32, 33, and then the first eight verses of Exodus 34, if you take a bird's eye view of them, which we're going to have to do today, can't unpack them verse by verse, as I would normally like to do. Uh, If you take a bird's eye view, there's a pattern here that you see all through Scripture, and that is emptiness to fullness. It's the cycle, really, of the Christian life, of what he brings us all through over and over and over again. In this case, the case of this passage, it goes from the pastor's absence, Moses was their pastor, point one in your notes, as you'll see in the bulletins, to the father's fullness, point two. And then at the end of it all, as you'll see at the bottom of uh, of your notes, we'll look at the father's purpose through it all. As most of you know, at the very beginning of it all, in Exodus 32, 1, they told Aaron to make a God for us who will uh, go before us. Now, up until then, Moses had gone before them. He had gone before them, that is, until he left for the mountain, which we'll see every pastor is uh, called to do. But whether or not a pastor goes to the mountain, every pastor will leave, right? You know that well. And Moses had left them. And there's a lot to be learned here in his absence. After he had been at the mountain of God for 40 days and 40 nights, it says that Aaron, uh, he, they asked Aaron to make a God for us, to make a God who will go before us, it says, for this man Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Of course, they made the golden calf. Question, was it Moses, as they said, who brought them up? This man Moses who brought us up to the land of Egypt, true or false? Yeah, false. Right. God, of course he hadn't. God had brought them up. In fact, he had already told them that. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That was many chapters before Exodus 19.4. God did it, but they didn't get it. At least not for long, because they went on to make a God of a man. You might paraphrase it this way. Moses brought us up. He's gone now. So we need another God to go before us. You see, the idolatry did not begin here with the golden calf. No, with the golden calf, they just made a new idol as a substitute for the one that had disappeared. They just substituted one idol for another. Because all along, their faith was more in Moses than in God. 
which is why they get so upset at him over and over again. His whole thing was that they turned to God just like he himself had done as their example again and again and again for 40 days on the mountain and many other times. But for all practical purposes, they ended up clinging to Moses and expecting him to be, you know, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, and all the rest. And pretty soon, as a pastor, as you feel those expectations, you start to expect that of yourself, that you're supposed to be that way too. But Moses had been there, done that, when it came to being ever-present and all-knowing, as we'll see, and he wasn't doing it anymore. And one way you could tell he wasn't going to do it anymore is that he prayed so much. And most recently, just before they made the golden calf, he had completely vanished for 40 days and for 40 nights, which he would never have done if if he still thought he was supposed to be God, right? And then he went back to the mountain for another 40 days uh, and 40 nights, six more weeks, three months in all. And then it says, we're told that he would go to the tabernacle every day to pray. And God rewarded the persistence of this one man who was at the top. Really, he rewarded the absence uh, of this one man with his divine presence, with his presence among the people, as we'll see. Now, pastors are called to be with the people, which Julie and I would really uh, like doing uh, were we to come here. In fact, we've already enjoyed a whole lot of encounters with you at many different meetings over the last week, and we will in the week to come. Yet, I am not called to be omnipresent, and you need to know that at every meeting. Because I am not God. Just ask Julie. (laughs) No, don't don't ask Julie. (laughs) Though she may tell you some, maybe she should, I don't know. When it comes to being omniscient and omnipresent, only only your mom came close to that. (laughs) Right? It's like the Jewish proverb says, God could not be everywhere, therefore he made mothers. (laughs) Thank you, mothers. It's not that Moses was, you know, a recluse. He really got to know the people. In fact, it says in Exodus 18 that the people stood about, stood about Moses from morning to evening and he would counsel them and he would guide them and he would just be with them. But of course, Jethro ended up saying, Moses, this is way too much of a good thing. You shall surely wear yourself out, both you and these people. And then the, his famous advice, you be the people's representative before God. That is, you pray for them. Bring them before me, because only I can be God. That's one. Two, and you make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work which they are to do. That is, you teach them my ways. You put forth my word, and then I can be God in their hearts. And select out of all the people able men who fear God. That is, you let them do it too. Uh, Omnipresent mothers are one thing, and that's a good thing. Omnipresent pastors are quite another thing. Because whether we realize it or not, when we try to do too much or to be too much or to say too much, we're taking space that God wants to fill. And who would you rather have, me or him? But it's not just pastors who do that. It's everyone who no longer look like that in their heart of hearts. We ended up doing too much, saying too much, trying to be too much, and we burn out. You give him the tithe of your time, he'll more than make up for it, just like when we give him the tithe of our money. 
And for that to happen up there in our heart of hearts, when I wake up in the morning, I've got to ask this. The wrong question to ask when you wake up in the morning is this. What, how am I going to get all these things done today? Ever done that? I have. No, the right question to ask is, what good things am I going to have to sacrifice today for the sake of the best? And then believe God for that sacrifice that he'll work that for good. It'll always be that way. And we're talking today about the best of the best. Which is to be centered in God. And not to be scattered trying to be God. It all flows out of that. And so Jethro said, you're going to burn out before the people unless you start being God's representative before God. The people's representative before God. You pray, you teach. I've told, you, if, if you've come to the meetings, you know there's a whole thing that at Interim Pastor Ministries, we lead a church through. And it's a lot of different things that are really, really important and it's unique for each congregation. Uh, but this is the bottom line of what I would do were Julie and I to come. So important is this that it's all through Scripture. Moses did spend time with the people, but he also had to say no to the people so he could say yes to God, so he could let God be God. And what came as a result of his prayerful absence? Well, it was a powerful presence. This, this is about as simple a sermon as it gets. This is a two-point sermon. Though, by the way, it's not like a two-point longhorn sermon. Ever heard of a longhorn sermon? We learned about these while we were in Texas. We ministered there for about 12 years. A longhorn sermon is where you have a point here and a point there and a lot of <coughs> uh, bull in between. <laughs> Sorry about that. Or it's like the pastor who said, last week's message had so many points that this week's will be pointless. Maybe you wish that would happen sometimes. Well, I've only got two points today and hopefully they're not pointless. One, a pastor's absence. Two, the father's presence. People have been looking to Moses to bring them up, it says, and then to a calf to go before them. This is how ridiculous it can get. Forgetting that all the while, God himself had been going up in their midst. So God went on to teach them a lesson that they would never forget. It's in Exodus 33, verses, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Depart, go up from here, you and the people who you have brought up from the land of Egypt. This is like dripping with sarcasm, right? He'd about had it. To the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I swore it, I promised it, I'm going to fulfill it. My word is good. I'm not going to just wipe them off of the face of the earth. Saying to your descendants, I will give it and I'll give it to you. I will send an angel before you though instead. <laughs> just a little angel. He'll make it happen. And I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. It's still going to be great. You become a Christian, you're going to get a lot. But he disciplines his people. For I will not go up in your midst. Because you are an obstinate people and a I might destroy you on the way. If I was really who I was in my holiness, you wouldn't have a chance. So I'm going to back off. He's a merciful God. 
And when the people heard this, and the New English Bible translates it this way, the word, the next word, when the people heard this disastrous word, they went into mourning, and none of them uh, put on their ornaments. What did God do? He taught them something about his presence. Again, point two. He said, I will not go up in your midst. That is, he threatened to discipline his people by withdrawing his manifest presence. The manifest presence that had been with them ever since the parting of the Red Sea and all of the plagues and the gushing out of water, when they're all, all that stuff. And according to Revelation, he does the same thing with churches. He threatened to discipline his people by withdrawing his presence. And suddenly, they no longer took it for granted. It says in verse 4 that at this disastrous word again, they went into mourning and none of them put on their ornaments. No reason to be happy anymore. And many of you have gone through mourning too recently and a host of other emotions and you've taken off your ornaments. But thank goodness it's not the end of the story. And if this story in Exodus is true, then such disasters are good from the God who is good all the time. Someone said, and this applies here, you've been graced with the disaster that the soul requires to find its way home. How so? Well, he began by testing them by removing Moses to see who they were really looking to so they could see who they were really looking to. He knew all the time. Because more than we know, we cling to everything but God, whether that be financial security, having it all in the bank for retirement, or having good kids that turn out, per- or whatever it is. We just latch on to anything but God. And so he has to bring us to a disastrous place where we really have a problem, and there's nowhere to look but God. We really have a problem. But Moses had a prayer. Just like many of you have been praying fervently. Moses prayed a prayer that I've lifted up before going to every church we've served. Exodus 33, 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. You may call me to this church, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Lord, confirm it. I'm not going to do this without you. You have said, I have known you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. I'm redeemed by the blood of Christ. You love me. You've favored me. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. To know is a very uh, intimate term in the Hebrew. Let me know your ways that I may know you. Moses so wanted God's presence because he wanted to know him. And with that, you can do anything. Because intimacy with God had become his deepest passion, thanks to all that affliction. You're my foundation. Let me sink my roots down there, because everything else is going to be shifting sand. Let me know your ways that I may know you. Consider, too, that this is your people. You've called them by name, you've died for the church. And he said, that is God said. That's Moses' plea. What did God say? 
My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. I think that's a promise. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. Remember the hymn? Finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. And so God promised something, but still that wasn't enough for Moses. He so, he brought, was brought to the place where he so needed it. He said, and he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Do not take me there. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? Second plea. And for the second time, God said, I will do this thing of which you have spoken, that is, of which you have asked. He answered his prayer with his presence, just like Moses had said in Deuteronomy 4.7, for what great nation has a God so near, for what church has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? You know, under everything else, whether we realize it or not, what we most need is the presence of a father that we may know him, as Moses said. And why is the presence of the father so important to the children? Well, it's in all the literature. It's like earthly fathers. Their absence is truly disastrous. It's well documented in school records and divorce courts, penal institutions, the welfare system. When a father's an active Christian, his children are five times more likely to become Christians than when only the mother is a believer. Just statistics. There is a 75% conversion rate when dad is the spiritual father compared to a 15% when the mother alone is a Christian. One researcher put it this way, the most bumbling, inarticulate, tongue-tied, shy, introverted father is skyscrapers above the most educated, experienced, polished, cool youth director when uh, when it comes to his relationship with God, your children's relationship with God. There's simply no one in the world who can have the influence of a natural father, absolutely, positively no one, not any friend, not any professional, not any guardian, nothing, absolutely nothing has the potential for impacting a child's life more than the presence of a father. So take heart, men. You are making a difference just by being there. That does not go without saying more than you probably know. And if you don't have a father, if you're a single mother, you can take heart too because I, I know a father who can more than make up for whatever it is that you've been lacking at home, whether through by death or divorce or abuse or abandonment or whatever. Peter said the whole reason Christ died was to bring us to God. Remember 1 Peter 3.18? That is to bring us to the Father. In, in so many ways, that's the bottom line of the Christian faith. And I can tell you from my own experience that far more than an earthly father, far more than an earthly pastor, you need him. I told you, that, some of you that my first father died of cancer at the age of 33 when, when I was uh, six years old. And to me, it felt truly disastrous. We were missionaries in Hong Kong all the, uh, at the time, and, and I just felt so vulnerable and exposed and afraid of people, and all the boundaries were gone and vulnerable, and, and I wasn't, didn't feel like I was anything to anyone.
And for years, just like the children of Israel, I looked to all sorts of other men rather than to God because I couldn't connect with him. But God's agenda was to fill the void with himself. And it took time. But it happens. Just like that's his agenda here at faith. And he did come. And I can tell you, and many of you can too, that there is a fullness that does come to the emptiness. I can tell you from my own experience, as you can too, that there's a great advantage to be, being, to, 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 to be needy, to be empty. Because when you're full, humanly speaking, in terms of the American dream or whatever, there's no room for him. But when you're empty, you pray and he comes. You, know, you see, the more of him I know I need, the more I plead. The more of him I know I need, the more of him I get to know. That's the main idea here, if you're taking a bird's eye view of these chapters, like you see at the bottom of your notes as we move from the pastor's absence to the Father's presence to the Father's purpose. The more of him we know we, fill in the blank, need. The more of him we get to what? Fill in the blank. No. Application? Well, it's Eleazar, the son of Dodo. (laughs) Stick around. Don't bail out. There's nothing wrong with pain. Pain is good in God's eyes because he redeems it all. Stick around and you'll grow. Most of all in your relationship with him. Through the hard labor of our adversity, as our hands grow weary, as they cling to the Lord in prayer, rather than jumping ship, the adversity without which we will sink back into complacency. And the Lord will bring about a great victory. Application, well, now, I guess it's uh, 55, eight years later. No, yeah, 60 years later, <laughs> after he passed away. Takes time. But now, it's just him and me under it all, and that's all I need. Though I go up and down too. And so I protect my time with him jealously, and it means I'll have to say no to some pretty good things. But believe me, you don't, you don't want the me I'd be without him. Just ask Julie. Like she says sometimes, Brian, you, you need to take a prayer walk. And if I'm wise, I'll say, yes, dear. <laughs> and when I do, it, just as with it, so many of you, his presence is so subtle, but so powerful. And what is that presence like? Well, I used to look at those three children of mine, those fragile little beings when they were small and vulnerable. I could feel in my bones, given where I'd come from, their aloneness without me. And that's how he feels when he looks on us. Sometimes I would hunger to hold them when they were sleeping 
In fact, when each of them was nursing, I'd go through the same ritual uh, with them every day. It started with Jordan. I used to bathe him in the early morning so mom, mommy could sleep in after nursing at all those ungodly hours of the wee morning. And, um, and I'd, I'd bathe him, dry him off, wrap him up, hold him close, and he'd be all cuddled. Curl, his legs would be curled up under me and his head would, would be on my shoulder and we'd walk around the house in the quiet of the day. And then I tried to put to words the acceptance that I wanted my presence to mean. Now, I know some of your kids that are here today, and I know some of your parents. I know them well, and I know this is how they feel about you. I would hold Jordan close, and I'd say the same thing every day. I'd say, Daddy loves Jordan when he's happy. Daddy loves Jordan when he's sad. Daddy loves Jordan when he's friendly. Daddy loves Jordan when he's mad. Daddy loves Jordan when he's good. Daddy loves Jordan when he's bad. Daddy loves Jordan when he's leaving. Daddy loves Jordan when he's staying. Daddy loves Jordan when he's sleeping. Daddy loves Jordan when he's waking. I just make up these things. And then I'd say this at the very end. Daddy loves Jordan in the daytime. Daddy loves Jordan in the nighttime. And then Daddy loves Jordan all the time. And when I started it with him, he couldn't talk much. Couldn't string together more than two or three words at a time. But more often than not, I hear him say this when I finished. With his head on my shoulder, he'd say, Happy. Happy. It's all we need. And so it can be with us. Finding, as he promised, perfect peace and rest at the heart of it all. Reminds me of what we sang today. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love as he brings us to the Father. Through the storms, he is Lord. Lord of all, he's my rock and my foundation. Fire before us, you're the brightest. You will lead us through the storms. He wants to be the God who goes before you too. He wants to be the God who goes before you as never before. He wants to bring his presence to you. So like never before, he can show his fullness through you. And to that end, we really lift our hands, call on him, that's it. For who has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him. So let's close by doing that together.